Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Today, I'm very happy to introduce to you Francesca Gentile, a certified clinical sexologist and initiated shaman who inspires transformation through combining the science and soul of sexuality. For over 20 years, she's compassionately empowered thousands of clients and students around the world to reclaim the spark, bridge sexual differences, heal from trauma, and deepen self-love. She's an expert in the field of integrating sexuality, consciousness, healing, Tatra, and the use of BDSM as a therapeutic modality. She is a professor at the International Institute of Clinical Sexology, where she is studying to receive her PhD. She has conducted workshops and presented at conferences in the United States, Netherlands, Italy, Malta, Israel, England, Ireland, Canada, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. It is so very lovely to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Cara, thank you so much for having me here. I'm just, I'm so delighted. I love reading how you've been all over the world. That sounds so amazing and fascinating and getting to hear, I think, so many people's stories and understanding sexuality from the depth of culture. Sounds pretty awesome. I love that part. I love that, you know, field research of life. And I Mm -hmm. really invite everyone to think of themselves as a researcher, that every conversation, every show, every conversation with someone we know that we listen to over here, that Mm -hmm. all of it is actually data about men, about women, about gender, about sexuality, about what works, about what doesn't. And, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's like so fascinating to see what are the similarities and what are the differences in how we relate and what we think politeness is or good sex is or who's in charge of sex or who's in charge of the relationship around the world. And one of my favorite takeaways is that there is no one true right and only way. Mm. There is no one true right and only way. And when we are really in one culture, one neighborhood, one church, one one town, we don't get a chance to recognize that there's so many ways to uh, connect with the divine and to live a beautiful life and to just really find our authenticity and balance loving me, loving you. Mm. There's that sweet spot between. That's beautiful because I do feel like we so often judge ourselves and feel shame because we might not have maybe a sex life like our close um, friend does, or we may not feel the certain way as our other close friends. And I feel like as I started studying sexuality, I recognized the vastness of sexuality, that there is really any way that we need to (laughs) experience sexuality and that human sexuality is there's a richness to it and there doesn't have to be a set way of doing things. Yeah. I mean, as long as there's consent, exactly. Collaboration, Mm -hmm. we, 
you know, find the courage and the practice to actually talk about it that, you know, if I could break one myth about sex, it would be that it's somehow not sexy to talk about it or that we won't have access to sex if we talk about it. Where one of the things I learned in, in my foray as a field researcher in BDSM is that when people start negotiating, which is part of the gold standard of playing, playing in BDSM, is they actually have more sex, better sex, and they're happier before, during, and after. And to me, that's the gold standard of sex. Mm. I don't care what you're doing. Are you and whoever you're with, even if it's you and you, did you feel good about it as you were getting ready for it? Did you feel good about it during it? And did you feel good about it after? Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> what would those conversations look like? Because I feel like there's a lot of people who don't necessarily understand what goes into role-playing and BDSM and the way that uh, there's a lot of intention. That's yeah. And sadly, you know, what, what just it drives me crazy is that religions often shame our sexuality, but uphold that somehow the, the, the ceremony of marriage will, will give us a download about what sacred sex is and it doesn't. And then, you know, uh, and then the culture is just sort of weird and confused about sexuality. And then a pornography actually sets up unrealistic expectations. Everybody's hot, hard, wet, ready all the time. And, and then romance also sets up, uh, romance novels, romance films set up unrealistic expectations of how unconsciously attuned we're going to be and how we're just going to feel each other and know that right moment to like kiss or stop or or touch or wear. And so it's so important to see and mo- have modeled what does those negotiations actually look like. So um, I didn't know, I don't know how to turn off my notifications. You'll hear things <laughs> now and then. And I just want to say that shamanically speaking, I'm a clinical shamanic sexologist. We'll just take those pings as meaning that's important. So that it's important to really find out and find places that people are modeling negotiation. And you can actually take classes, you can Google um, sexual negotiations, uh, sexual negotiation video, sexual negotiation video BDSM, because it's, it's something that I've pulled from BDSM into my day-to-day life is to be able to say, um, hi, Cara, let's, let's imagine we're both a yes here for sex. Hi, Cara. Um, uh, I really find you attractive and I, and I'm, and I'm wondering if we could have sex tonight. Oh, and then I respond. (laughs) (laughs) I would really love to have (laughs) yes looks like. We'll do the no in a minute. (laughs) Um, So she said, yes. Now we've both said we want sex, but we have no idea what we mean. Mm -hmm. So I might say, uh, you know, one of the things that I found is I really love about sexuality is having a sense of where we're going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, do we want to have it, you know, where I'm the giver and you are receiving luxuriously? Do we want to have it be your the giver and I'm receiving luxuriously? Are we wanting it to be more of a dance, you know, where we're flowing back and forth? And in some part of our brain, we're actually looking to see: is it fair? Is it is it fair? Am I giving as much as 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 I'm receiving? Are you? Am I receiving as much as I'm giving? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are we? You know, just just right there. Mm-hmm. What do we think? I always prefer a dance, I would say. (laughs) Me 
too. I love a dance. Like every now and then, like maybe for my birthday, it's nice to just luxuriously receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, in totality, it's all about me. It's my birthday. But in general, I would say that I also really enjoy a dance. Now, in terms of a dance, one of the things that I'm actually sensitive to is energy and energy follows our thoughts. So if is it possible that you could actually, when you touch me, put in to your thoughts, not only that you find me attractive, because I'm going to guess that you do if you want to have the sex with me, but could you put in some compassion, some hmm. kindness that I'm like a tender human being that you know has my ups and downs? Could you hold me tenderly in your heart and your touch, as well as with a sense of arousal? Yes, I can. Yay! Oh my goodness. Now we're like cooking a recipe that I really like. And yes, it's uh, so good. Right. <laughs> and how about you? What kind of energy would you mm-hmm. most like to put into my hands or put into my body or my lips? I would like a sense of exploration and playfulness. Ooh, exploration. Okay, let me let me dial that one in. Exploration and playfulness. Okay, dialing that in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I like to kind of check on a scale of one to ten. Um, and let's say, you know, five is actually perfection. Mm-hmm. So we're going to say the midpoint balance is perfection. And that one is like, I'm not feeling anything. Are we, are we, are we going anywhere yet? And maybe when we get eight, I don't know about you, but sometimes things can be too intense for me, not mm-hmm. necessarily even intense bad, mm-hmm. but sometimes I can just start to feel overwhelmed yeah. and just need a breath, just need a pause for a moment. And so sometimes I like to just check in, you know, can you give me a number? And if you say five, then I know four or five, I know that I'm right around the sweet spot and I I could keep going where we are, whatever I'm doing for a while or whatever we are doing in the dance for a while. And then if you say one, then I'm going to maybe try something new, check again. And if, if I keep getting ones, I'm not attuning to you. Like I'm not really figuring out what's, going to get be the are we in a cha-cha are we in a tango are we you know are we in the Viennese waltz I don't know what dance we're in Mm -hmm. so I just want to I would want to pause it and say you know what dance are we in what are what are you wanting and this is super important what are you wanting more of Mm. less of or different so this just makes me think about how do couples respond to you when you teach them about this and when you show them like you just did, you know, of how you have these conversations, because I know there's many people who don't know how to do this. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, So when we look at being able to collaborate and co-create, which would be a healthy human being, a healthy couple, what Terry Real calls a functional adult, collaborative, responsive, co-creative, able to sometimes postpone gratification to give toward the relationship without resentment. You know, there's, there's something that's really beautiful about the functional or wise adult. Well, there was one day I realized I, I wasn't one and that I'd never seen one. Like I didn't know how to be one because I hadn't seen one. And, you know, it's like that's I awesome. saw people when they, when they were, di- when they had a difference of opinion mm-hmm. or they didn't feel that their partner was giving them what they needed they would have a tendency to what? Back away. There's a different shut down. Shut down. Yep. Mm-hmm. That, you know, flight, shut down, stonewalling. What's another option when we feel like we're not getting what we want, 
or we're not in agreement. I think we only seek what we want. Do you know, yeah, we are power. We, argue, we get mm-hmm. angry. So, you know, there's, there's a tendency for many human beings to overgive and then resent sometimes right. to just get very angry. You're not listening. You're not hearing what I want. You're not giving me what I want. I always give you never give. So there's like this tendency to escalate and all of that intensity actually comes from things that were not met growing up. Right. And sometimes that means that we never saw people respond to each other or us in a way that said, Oh, what, what are you saying that you're wanting? Mm-hmm. Uh, with curiosity, with compassion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like when our needs are not being met, like you said, but sometimes I think there's this element where people don't even understand what their needs are and then how to even ask for those. So aging is inevitable. Wisdom takes work. And at, mm. you know, at 63, I will say it's lifelong. It's yeah. it keeps getting better like a video game. There's another level and it's never done. And we want to lean in now. So if you're watching this, listening right now, you know, thank you. We've already been leaning into this, that you found us and, you know, keep going because it keeps getting better. And there's new skill sets to learn mm-hmm. on healthy negotiation, listening. Uh, what I think I hear you saying is that maybe one of your favorite things to do when you feel there's a disharmony is actually withdraw. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Are you one of those withdrawers or shutdowners when you feel like it's starting to escalate or there's starting to be disharmony? Oh, with myself? Yeah, I would say that there there's a part of me that tends to pull away because uh, I've recognized that as much as I long for intimacy, I'm not as great as it as I want to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's because I think that... Uh, part of it, you know, I came from a family who didn't touch a lot, you know, and was very uh, just kind of like the one hug family, like, good to see you, tap, tap. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and so in terms of touch, and it, uh, I long for that. And I do experience it. It's not something that I am great at. And I wish I was better at. And I'm working on. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're speaking to is the normalized enculturation of uh, the dominator model of the way we raise children mm. is often uh, to control them, to punish them, to lecture them, to shame them with the intention of helping them be quote unquote good people. But when we lecture, control, shame, denigrate, you know, spank, et cetera, our kids, we're actually um, enculturating shame. Mm-hmm. And when people feel shame, Brene Brown talks about this a lot. When people feel shame, they lose their voice. When people feel shame, they lose the capacity to even hear themselves. They lose the capacity to know what they want and what they don't want. Mm-hmm. So uh, in all of my studies as a, as a clinician, it's, it keeps coming back to really receiving training and support in what is it to practice compassion, not like a word. I think we all understand the word compassion. It's a word. It's kind of like being kind, huh? People <laughs> are yourself, right? Self-compassion. I mean, yeah. it's one thing to understand self-compassion or self-love 
as two words that go together, it's a very different thing to experience it yeah. in ourselves to yeah. the point where, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I'm so stupid. Oh, oh God. And then to have a, a voice in our heads that says, and I love you. Mm-hmm. I get yeah. to make mistakes. That's something I uh, appreciated my son the other day. I already know, right, where I've made mistakes in parenting and things that I feel upset about and that I try to do over and over. And he made a comment to me that I had said something to him and he goes, mom, I feel like you're shaming me. And he's eight. (laughs) I was like, oh. And so I immediately stopped and I said, thank you for telling me that. I'm really sorry. I don't ever want to do that. I'm going to work on how I just, you know, talk to you and things like that. And I tell parents all the time when I teach them about talking about sex to their kids that they're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And I said, but the point is that we keep trying. And I always point out that parenting is the hardest job. And that job you'll ever love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that it's and that we have to offer ourselves kindness and compassion, like you're saying, because it's really hard. And then we also feel that sense of shame because we know what it feels like to feel shame and then to feel like, oh, God, did I just do that to my own child? It hurts. Right. If, if we let it mm-hmm. be, our children can be our greatest teacher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with my son. I would, you know, maybe make dinner and then I'd want him to do the dishes and I would, I would say something like, uh, well, I made dinner, you know, you need to do the dishes or why aren't you doing the dishes? I made dinner. Now, these are things that I heard all the time. Right. I cook, you clean. I did this. I do all these things for you. You should be grateful. I do all these things for you. You should love me. Stop asking for things I can't give you when I give you everything I can. You know, I would hear these, you know, you should, you should. And when, and it was normal. It was like, this is the way you talk to people you love. And so when I said this to my son and he was also fairly young, uh, you know, I cook dinner, you need to clean the dishes. He was like, don't you even. And I'm like, what? What, Don't I even what? What? And he goes, don't you don't you guilt me like that. I'm like, guilt you? He goes, yeah, you just, you just manipulated me. You just, you just, you just said that I had to do the dishes because you cooked for me. You know what? Don't cook for me. Mm. And I went, oh my God. Oh my God. I don't even know how to like move through the world without having covert expectations. Covert means hidden or unspoken. Mm-hmm. Or assumptive. If I pay for dinner, you owe me sex. If mm-hmm. I marry you, your money belongs to me. If I, you know, whatever. And there's, we walk through the world. If I'm your boss, I get. Hmm. We walk through the world with this, these, uh, what Rhea Neiser calls the dominator model of culture. Yeah. It's someone who is older, has, uh, is your boss, is your parent, has some perceived position of authority has some assumptive control over your time, your energy, your respect, your uh, sometimes your sexuality, your ideas, your thoughts. And, and this is actually really sick. This has been going on, by the way, for 5,000 years. Yeah. It's the dominator model of culture. And we're here to shift this 
to what she also calls the partnership way, the mm. collaborative way. So when my son said this to me, I went, whoa. And and I said, let me let me slow this down. One of my favorite phrases. Mm. Let me slow this down. I want to make sure I'm hearing you accurately. We could change our lives if all we ever did when someone said something that was like, uh, said, let me slow this down. I want to make sure I'm hearing you accurately. What I think I'm hearing is that I made an assumption that I never got an agreement from you. I never asked you, if I cook dinner, would you be willing to do the dishes? Can that be our rate of exchange that I cook and you clean? Are you overtly agreeing to that? I never did that. No, you did it. <laughs> and I said, so, so. So if I were to ask, if I were to ask, is there anything that I can do that would, you know, inspire you to do the dishes? What would that be? And he said, well, don't connect it to something else. Just ask me. I said, wait, wait. Okay, now you're hurting my brain. <laughs> okay, you're saying... My, my world is melting, Dylan. You're saying that I can just ask you for something and you're not doing it because you owe it to me? Mm. What? And he goes, yeah, I'll either do it or I won't do it, but I don't want to have to do it because I owe you. And I'm like, oh my God, wait, this is my, my whole world is shattering because my whole world is based on this covert obligation. You owe me. I'm going to do this. So you owe this. I'm going to do this. So you owe this but we're never going to talk about it. <laughs> and I call this the dark bargain in relationship for codependence is I'm going to overgive. I'm going to love you up one side down the other. I'm going to maybe massage you or make love to you or cook for you or appreciate you. And I'm really going to be overgiving and draining my life force into you because secretly I want you to like be puffed up in such a way that you'll turn around and overgive to me. I want to save you so that you'll save me. And I'm like, but I've never sat down with someone and said, oh, by the way, could we have an overt agreement? I'm going to you know, pour energy and love into you for about two months. And then you're going to get saved. You're going to take it and be saved and whole and love yourself so that you can turn around and give that to me. Are we agreeing? Oh I've gosh. never done that. And actually, I don't think anyone would ever agree. <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, when you just spell it out plain as day. I mean, we just want to go up to ourselves and be like, what is our problem? (laughs) Why have we been operating this way for centuries? You know, because it's clear that it doesn't work that well. And it's clear that, you know, more and more I've recognized that shame is is passed down from generation to generation. And often... Yeah. And we get each other's shame stories and stories, shame that we never asked to have. And it is put onto us. And then if we don't recognize it, and if we don't work with it, then we are just giving it to the next generation. And that's something where my mind has been blown a lot this week, just learning more and more about this. And denigration stories. So one side of this multi-generational trauma is how maybe I'm 
flawed or shamed as a man or a woman or a human being, and I shouldn't be so emotional or I shouldn't be so sexual or I shouldn't be so sensitive or I shouldn't be, you know, like all the things I shouldn't be that are shaming to me. Mm -hmm. And then there's those uh, also a quote unquote private club conversations where women talk about men, men talk about women, and we shame or we denigrate men or we denigrate women or we denigrate those women, those women, or we denigrate those men or we denigrate that race or we denigrate whatever. And these conversations that happen at while we're cooking, while we're gardening, while we're at the computer, while we're doing things around the house with our kids, they start to take that in. And, and, you know, we have to be taught to be, you know, racist. We have to be taught to be, um, uh, to, to look at men or women as the enemy who's withholding something from us. Yeah. We don't just come in saying, oh, men are dangerous and they withhold things from me mm-hmm. or women are dangerous and they withhold things from me. It's, these are conversations. Now, sometimes they're experiences because once again, we can uh, per- perpetuate, we can you know, uh, treat each other in harmful ways mm-hmm. out of our own harm, being harmed. Then we turn around and treat the next generation in harmful ways. And then it just, it's like a disease that gets passed, passed down. So how do we break the cycle? We break the cycle by, I call it, you know, uh, breaking curses, you know, that these, these uh, epigenetics, these, these assumptions from generation to generation, culture to culture about how we raise children, how we, what it is to be human. These are curses. And we start to be like the little boy that says the emperor has no clothes. We start to be the person who says, why? Well, why do we shake hands and not bow? Why do we use forks and not chopsticks? <laughs> Why do uh, women wear dresses, but not men? Why, uh, why, do, uh, why do we shake hands and not kiss, you know, on cheeks, like some cultures? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? And is it really right? Or is it really right for me? Mm-hmm. And what I'm about to say is super important, just because something is common, normal, and everybody does it or thinks it doesn't mean it's right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it's not traumatic. Mm-hmm. So if we were to say, you know, like uh, clitorectomies in parts of Africa are considered normative. It's yeah. something that a mother would say that she would do in love for her daughter. She's not doing it thinking I'm going to ruin her life. I'm going to give her a life of pain. I'm going to cut her off from her sense of self-love. She's not thinking that. She's actually thinking, I want her to fit in. I want her to feel loved. Um, The male lineage in my family is Jewish. And uh, when my son was born, his father's Jewish, my father's Jewish, is that it was like assumptive that he was going to have a bris. He was going to get circumcised. But when I thought about it later, I'm like, oh, my God. Yes, that was done out of love. It was done out of a desire to fit in, a desire to belong to a culture. But that's a trauma. Mm. That is a trauma for a little person. Yeah. And we start to question. And this is so important to question in 
a heart open, curious way, not a shaming way. Oh, those bad people who did that. Mm-hmm. But to even ask, well, when that became a normal thing to do, what was going on in history and culture at the time? Mm-hmm. Why was that important maybe at that time? So let me hold tenderly that most things come from a source. But uh, my favorite story with this, have you heard the one about the roast? No. Mm-mm. So there's a, a mother and a little girl that are you know preparing the family roast. And this is the favorite family special Sunday roast recipe. So the mother's, you know, patting it and putting the herbs and everything. And she, it's all ready. The piece of meat is all ready to go in the oven. And then she cuts off about this much hmm. and puts it aside. And the little girl says, mommy, why do we, why do we cut off that part of the roast? <laughs> and the mother says, well, we, we always do like, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And the little girl says, well, but why? And it just so happens that grandmother's alive. So they call grandmother and they say, uh, and, you know, she goes, mom, uh, you know, that roast that we always do on Sundays, uh, we cut off about, you know, three inches or so before we put it in the oven. Yes. Yes. That's the recipe. Do you know why we do that? Well, we've always done that. We, that's what we do. But, but, but do you know why? No. Um, well, it just so happens that great-grandmother is alive. So they call great-grandmother and they say, you know, great-grandmother, you know, there's that Sunday roast recipe and we cut off the three inches. Do you know why? And she says, oh my goodness, are you still doing that? We cut off those three inches of the roast because we had a very small oven and it wouldn't fit in. <laughs> there's no reason to keep cutting off the roast. <laughs> but it becomes tradition. Mm-hmm. It's the way we do things. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is. And it's so important to kind of question why? 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 Huh? Why? <laughs> what does it actually serve? And maybe isn't there a more effective way? Mm-hmm. So let's say I, I'm one of those people who can get frozen like a deer in the headlights in bed. So uh, I can, I've developed the capacity. I used to not be able to say the word sex and um, raise conservative Christian. And now I can negotiate and I've developed like this inner teacher that can talk about sex. But when I'm in bed, I'm not the teacher. So suddenly, you know, my partner might say in bed or like, you know, oh, are you liking this? Or, you know, what else would you like? And I'm like, <gasps> hmm frozen. Yeah. And I'm frozen because the part of me that's in bed is actually more in, you know, if we think of this is the brain and this is the neocortex where we're very analytical and think, and then this is the amygdala and the limbic system where uh, it responds to feelings and, and uh, images. And then this down here is sensation is often when we're making love, we're down here. The beauty of making love is we're not up in here. We're down in our feelings or maybe, you know, some, some little images of, of love or just even looking at that person. And then maybe we're in sensation land, hopefully. <laughs> and, and so we're not up here. Right. In and the cerebral cortex. Correct. In yes. the neocortex, the cerebral, cerebral cortex, the um, frontal lobes, there's a, a number of words for the same thing. Yeah. Up here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so 
if you've ever asked someone or been asked and you're and you feel frozen, you're in you're making love, you're not normally in this part of the brain. Mm-hmm. That's why once again it becomes the negotiation becomes so important. Or often someone can just give a number. Like mm-hmm. it's much easier to say, give me a number. And let's say we have gone off kilter and it's not working right now. And mm-hmm. you say, give me a number, I could say like eight or you know, eight. If somebody says eight or above, stop. Hmm. something is just not working. Mm-hmm. So I could just say eight, we'll pause. And then I'll have a chance to, you know, maybe be held, come back, reconnect to my neocortex and say, it was really, really wonderful until you accidentally bumped my elbow. And um, when I got pushed out of the tree as a child, I broke my arm. And that's actually a place that still carries trauma for me. So now I can explain it. And I forgot to tell you when we were getting ready to make love that my elbow holds trauma for me. Who knew? And then how many people have those experiences of being touched in a certain way and then having a memory and not understanding the fact that that was a triggering moment for them? And then to even know how to talk about that or where to go from there. So important is um, I'm, I'm taking a class for clinicians right now on emotional safety and boundaries. And uh, one of the really important skills of our functional adult is containment. So containment means, you you know, you you hit my elbow accidentally, Hmm. and not and like suddenly I had this whole memory of falling out of the tree and crying and whatever. And I'm like, I'm not there with you anymore. I'm like here, Um, and I'm just like frozen. You just notice that I'm kind of frozen, and you're checking in. If if I don't know how to contain well, I may blame you. If I don't know how to contain and have some self-compassion, I'm feeling uncomfortable, hurt, sad, angry, and you're the closest person next to me. Therefore, Kara, it is your fault. Right. It is your fault that sex didn't work tonight. It is your fault that I got triggered. Mm-hmm. And so this is also very important to own our triggers rather than vomit them, Mm. to be that compassionate witness and ask anytime I have a really intense emotional response in the present, the intensity of the emotional response belongs to my past. Mm. When, if I can say just car, give me a minute. And I'm just thinking, why am I freaking the frick out here? She just like bumped my elbow. When's the earliest I felt really sensitive about my elbow and I may have forgotten. Mm. And then as I ask myself, like, how am I feeling? I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling hurt. When's the earliest? When the, when's the earliest? Then suddenly I, I recall this memory of falling out of the tree or being pushed actually out of the tree. And I'm like, oh, Kara. Yeah. Oh, I'm, you know, I, I just want to own that. I just, I'm just really present to this memory of being pushed out of the tree as a child. And let me just, let me just sit with that for a second. And what I actually do is I talk to the child. I go back to the child and I say, when you were five, I was five and I couldn't protect you from those mean kids in the neighborhood. I couldn't protect you, but guess what? Good news. I've grown up and I can listen to you now. So Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. here with Ari, what do you need? I would like you to ask Kara if she likes me 
And if I ask her to be careful with my elbow, if she will. Okay, honey, I can do that. So Cara, you know, I just kind of hung out for a second with that memory. And what I realize is that there's this always in all of us, a tender young part. And that part of me wants to know that you care about whether I'm comfortable or uncomfortable and that you'll, you'll do your best to be careful about my left. Is that mm-hmm. something you do? Yes. And thank you for telling me. I did not know. <laughs> right? I, I did not know. I mean, one of the things to get is that our lovers, our partners, our friends, our parents do not sit up in an attic with cobwebs late at night, rocking on a chair going, how can I ruin their day? Mm-hmm. How can I poke Francesca's elbow? <laughs> mm-hmm. How can I tell her something in just the right way that she will be upset for days? You know, people don't, people are not in the attics doing that, mm-hmm. but they're just stumbling through their own lives. They have their own landmines of triggers inside them that go off. And then you and I are in the trigger tango. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to recognize that in partnerships that are committed and you're in it for a while, then sure enough, that's when you're going to feel safe. And that's where you're like, I'm going to just bring out my unconscious trauma onto you (laughs) because I'm going to blame all of my crap on you. Right. And I think that's where that's something that's not talked about. That's something that is not brought into the forefront of our brains And that's when a lot of relationships fall apart and plummet. So just so important to know is that there are three neurobiological stages of how we human beings get together and go, boy. And one of them is the lust stage. And these are three separate neurobiological systems that are designed to have us fucking make babies, basically. Right. And so, so the first one is what? And lust, you know, is with the pheromones, it's our histoimmune systems, like within like less than 10 seconds, in many cases, the sound of someone's voice, their scent, their something about them is starting a cascade mm-hmm. of hormones in our body that feels like longing, feels like I want to have you, I want to touch you, I want to get up in you. And, and I don't recognize that these are, I'm responding to my hormones. I think I'm responding to you but I'm actually responding to my hormones. Now, Mm. like any drugs, my hormones are a drug, like any drug, they're time limited. So for two months, let's say a couple of weeks, usually not more than two to three months, I can't get my enough of you. I want to rip your clothes off. And this is what we see a lot in porn and what we see in certain parts of romantic films where they're like slamming each other against the door and they're Mm -hmm. ripping each other clothes off and you see the trail of clothes through the rooms, you know, depending on whether it's, you know, PG, R, rated, what you see and what you don't see. But it's all this like, really like hunger, this primal animal sort of hunger to get, you know, like, kind of eat each other up. And we're, we're, you know, wanting to get high off of each other's pheromones. We're wanting to feel that uh, dopamine, which is anticipated. Patient and reward. Yes. Anticipate patient and reward is dopamine. It's gambling, it's shopping, it's gaming, it's all that stuff. And then the adrenaline. You know, when new relationships also have that sense of can I touch you? Can't I touch you? What's going to happen if I do this or that? And so there's that um, anxiety, excitement, Mm -hmm. 
you know, pathway. So that's the first couple of months. But after a couple of months, it wears off and I might start to feel bored. So sometimes you hear people say that their relationships only last a couple of months. They're surfing that cycle. Then the next cycle is the falling in love or limerence cycle. And that adds to the dopamine and the adrenaline phenylethylalamine, which is in chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) So good. And phenylethylalamine is the sense of merging and well-being. It's like, oh, I've never felt so like I belong so much with someone. And I've never felt like I had so much in common with someone. Oh, you like chocolate and sunset and music too? Oh my God, Car, we have so much in common. Did you hear my you're my soulmate, right? <laughs> my twin flame. And then that that lasts approximately nine months, not longer than two years. Some of these can last a little longer or shorter, depending on the person or the distance, you know, some of, but it's, you know, nine months to two years. So when you ask people, how long was the relationship good? How long was the sex good? You'll often hear approximately two years. Mm-hmm. So after two years, if they actually still like each other, if we still like each other, Cara, we move into the attachment phase, which is supported by serotonin and oxytocin. We may still hold hands. We may still cuddle in Netflix. We may cook together. We're de- developing like a more grounded sense of who we are as a couple and, and how we actually feel good together and how we go out into the world together and see friends. Maybe one of us is pregnant. You know, we're getting this sense of who we are as a more grounded couple, but we may not feel as turned on by each other. Right. Now, depending on how much we've been using turn on, the lust and love, falling in love cycles to take away the pain of the rest of our lives. Now, even though I adore you as a human being, I adore you. I trust no one like you. Mm-hmm. I just feel like we really do. We've been together a couple of years now, and I really feel like we have so much in common. And we live together really great, but, oh, oh, that person's tasty. Oh, no, no, I'm here with you, honey. I'm, I'm really, I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody looks now and then, and there's a saying, I don't care whether, where you get your appetite as long as you eat at home. But it's what do I do with those moments of, of that? What do I do with those moments of someone flirting back to me, you know, throwing that interest back to me? Mm-hmm. Do I just play a little a little tennis and then come back to you? Just a little bit of like, oh, yes, you are attractive. Thank you for that compliment. And then go, oh, honey, I had a really interesting experience this afternoon. Or do I let that build into the affair, which is going to break down our relationship? Or, mm-hmm. you know, being consciously non-monogamous is another thing altogether, <laughs> which mm-hmm. we're not necessarily going to go in in this, in this one. Right. But But what we're looking at is how do we bring consciousness to these systems and how do we biohack them? And we potential in a long-term relationship is true intimacy. But as Cara said, when I start to open my heart to her, suddenly my fear is there. Suddenly, Mm -hmm. you know, my trauma is there. Suddenly all the times I was hurt, left, rejected, neglected. My mother was a drug addict. My father was abusive, whatever. You know, my dad left when I was five. Um, You know, what my mother died when I was 10, you know, all those things start coming up Mm -hmm. as I start to open my heart to you. Mm -hmm. By the way, I made that up. I have my own trauma, but I didn't just tell you what it really is, um, is that as I start to open my heart to you, that deep, you know, once again, back in the, in the brainstem and back in the amygdala, the, 
the images, the, the imaginal memory and the sensate memory of being left or abandoned or constrained or, or, or uh, abused in some way, ashamed, all start to come back. And I, I want love with you. I really want love with you, but this is in the way. What Kara's pointing to is this is actually normal. Mm-hmm. I recommend also talking about it in advance. What are we going to do when that part of the relationship, not if, when that part of the relationship arrives mm-hmm. and, you know, that it is an opportunity for healing, mm-hmm. deepening, deepening with ourselves, really learning to love ourselves, not as an idea, but a, but a practice and really being able to go deeper with another human being. So when I do work with couples that are willing to do this work, I've seen them go from not having sex at all to having sex like three to four times a week. I've seen them go from like almost ready to split up to like really having this delightful, you know, uh, adventure in life together. Hmm. And it takes, it takes a courage and a commitment to actually um, start to face and own what in many cases we've been running away from for decades. Yeah. And I think there's, I think you pointed to it, like there's a sense of bravery and courageousness that needs to happen. And so many people I believe and I've heard who walk around, you know, hiding those aspects of themselves or feeling shameful because we are seeing everyone's life being perfect (laughs) on these social media devices or, um, you know, we're not letting people know that maybe we have a sexless marriage or maybe um, we hold a great resentment towards our partner or maybe, you know, we are not recognizing where this pain is coming from. But as we wear smiles on our faces, we're actually quite depressed, you know, and I think it's that aspect of recognizing. Like I tell people all the time, um, since becoming a sex educator, I am so much more unshocked, I want to say, or I'm, I'm more, I'm not as judgmental as I used to be because I recognize how hard relationships are, especially with ourselves, um, especially with needing to heal from past hurts and that we play those hurts out unintentionally most often on the people we care about. And it's something where, uh, you know, I've, I've told a group of teenagers, I said to them, I was a speaker and I said to them, everyone in this room is going to hurt another person and everyone in this room is going to get hurt. We have to learn how to process those emotions and we have to learn how to deal with that. And then we have to learn how to recover and how to reconcile. You know, because that's something we're not taught. <laughs> that's nothing we that we're not taught so about. Not taught. Um, and <laughs> the why we go to clinicians and mm-hmm. counselors, healer, healers, therapists, somatic, whatever. There's so many modalities that we could try. Is we and nonviolent communication, which I adore, is we're actually wanting to gain new skill sets because in most cases we were not taught healthy, functional, collaborative, empowered relating because you know that's not how we most children are raised. And then we also want to heal from these deep places of trauma and not put them on our partner. So mm-hmm. I love that Terry Real talks about the wounded child, the adaptive child, and the functional adult. Mm-hmm. And we go through our entire lives, make tons of money, have big cars, big houses, and never have developed past the adaptive child. Yeah. And 
and and we'll feel like we're always running. We'll feel like we're always empty. We'll feel like we're the imposter putting on that mask to the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, to the world, we might look successful. And then a couple of years ago, there were all these people that committed suicide. You know, that Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, I mean, they looked successful on the surface, but they felt so much pain. Right. So, you know, they were an inspiration to me to mm-hmm. lean into more inner work and try this on. Uh, really changed my life too. Resentment is being kidnapped by my inner child. Mm-hmm. So anytime that I perceive that I am trapped and powerless, anytime I say, you make me, I don't let my clients say, you make me. Anytime I say, you made me angry, you made me love you, you made me hate you, you, you know, you made me, you made me, I'm not in my adult self. Mm-hmm. And when I feel like I just, I, I'm just, I feel so trapped. I just feel so trapped in this situation. I'm not in my adult self. The time, when is the time that we're physically and functionally, dysfunctionally trapped and powerless? We are literally trapped and powerless as children. Our parents can pick us up and move us into another room. They can open our mouth and force feed us. They can, I was tied to the bed at one point. They can tie us to the bed. They can do they have power over us and we are powerless and resentment keeps us alive. Anger when we're a child is better than depression because if we're too depressed, we might just want to kill ourselves when we get to our teenage years. So resentment, it's like, this is our power is resentment. Hmm. But if we want to come into adulthood, we need to start to rewind, rewire and reclaim that we are powerful and free. No one has power over me that I don't give them. Now I may be married, but that doesn't mean I couldn't walk out the door and never come back. Or, you know, I may be, have a job and, you know, where I punch the clock every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, doesn't mean I couldn't walk out the door and never come back. Now, certain actions may have consequences. Doesn't mean I can't do them. Hmm. So if I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm done, I'm not saying this is actually functional, but if I said I'm done and just left, as, as an empowered adult, I could do that. Right. So I actually am free and powerful. Hmm. And this is so key is distinguishing, making distinct, feeling unsafe versus being unsafe. And I hear people all the time saying, you make me feel so unsafe. You make me, no, I have no power to make you feel unsafe. Unless someone and... Um, I'm a certified self-defense coach where you, yeah, somebody might go to hit you doesn't mean that they made you feel unsafe. Hmm. Someone may yell at you doesn't mean that they made you feel unsafe. They're doing whatever they're doing. They're saying whatever they're saying, but my feelings arise from my story, my narrative, my perceptions about what it means that somebody's putting a, a fist towards me or what it means that they're saying some calling me name. Hmm. And that's why I do the work because where I'm, where I've done my inner work, if somebody says you're an idiot and that's when I've worked on, somebody says you're an idiot. Then I go, Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I can get that. But you know, maybe somebody calls me a purple avocado and I'm like, Oh dare you. You're really making me feel bad. You know, because, I haven't done the work that I was actually called, you know, vegetable names as a child. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm using kind of a silly example, but, but it's real is I, 
you know, that this, this big bomb of a response or reaction, I like to separate out reaction from response, the big bomb of the reaction is tied to the past. And the only way to really unwind that is to do some amount of facing. Now, EMDR and EFT can do that a little bit lighter. There are some, but it's still, it's still, you know, will, uh, you know, reconfigure and you might feel kind of, kind of woozy for the rest of the day after a session because you're really hmm. rewriting the inside some very deep places. Right. And then um, inner aspect method, internal family systems, family constellations. There's so many wit gestalt. There's so many modalities today that we somatic experiencing that you can work with to start to really rewire this, but it is not our partner's job to walk tiptoe through our minefield constantly. They can choose to collaborate consciously. Like if I say, could you, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work on healing this. You know, now that I rec- remember, above, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go to my therapist and I'm going to, you know, do like, do some work on this. But in the meantime, could you be a little careful? So now I'm inviting her collaboration. Yeah. I'm not putting it all on her. Inviting into the process. Inviting consent. This is the new paradigm here. Inviting yeah. consent, making requests, mm-hmm. feeling empowered. So anytime I resent you, I have crossed my own boundary. I have overgiven. There's a request I haven't made. And there's a boundary I haven't really held. Mm. And the person who needs to hold my boundary as an adult is me. Yeah. If I just, if we could just have these lessons being taught in grade school through, I mean, why are we not doing this is what I want to say. But we are almost coming down to time already, which I cannot believe. Like I can have another date. For our listeners, I did not ask her one single question <laughs> that I had prepared for this podcast. So <laughs> this is what I love about. So we've had, you know, that was great. We just <laughs> went with where we needed to go. Um, so I am going to ask you, because I ask all of my guests this question, is what story are you currently reframing for your life right now? Which of the many? Um, <laughs> let's see. I am currently reframing for my life. Uh, yeah, what I shared is that I am powerless. That I um, that people make me have experiences or feelings. I am reframing that um, you know that I am trapped in situations, whatever that mm-hmm. situation is. Even if it's the pandemic, it's one thing to say I'm in the pandemic. It's another thing to say I'm trapped and powerless in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So when I'm in my powerful adult. This is the situation. It's raining. Now I've got options around it's raining. This is the situation. It's a pandemic. And so I, I actually have been feeling a certain amount of loneliness, horniness, lack of oxytocin, isolation, and this kind of low level depression has been there. Mm-hmm. And what I'm reframing is how can I work with this pandemic? And this, and this uh, almost like rawness I feel in this, in this contracted bandwidth that I feel to support myself to hear my limits and boundaries, 
to support myself to make requests? How can I use like the pain? I'm super lazy. And so pain is a great motivator (laughs) for growth and change. How can I use this pain, this discomfort to actually grow my ability to, to have functional boundaries and uh, healthy collaborations? Hmm. That's awesome. (laughs) That's good. I'm glad that, you know, I feel like you've given our listeners a lot of insight and wisdom onto how we can change, you know, the neuro pathways that we have created for ourselves and the ways that we talk to ourselves every day and to look for opportunities and to look for new ways of choosing language and um, stepping into a path of being brave and that we're worth that and our inner child is worth healing and that's okay. And we can do that, right? We're strong enough that we can do that for our inner child. And I think that's important. So if get, you, support, get support. Don't do You don't have to do this alone. Let's reframe that. You know, I'm only a good person if I'm alone doing this and you know, that I have to don't share your dirty laundry and don't tell tales out of school. Let's, let's, let's move into this really positive transparency. And the more that I reveal my authentic nature with grace as messy and as complex and, and it, you know, and uh, sometimes underdeveloped as it is, the more that I reveal it in a, as graciously as I can, the more I can feel your love. And if I'm hiding and putting a mask, like I'm going to have you meet my representative who's like always cool and always in charge and just, you know, then you could tell me all kinds of wonderful things. I'm never going to feel it. It's never going to get back here. Mm. Let's, let's also reframe that, uh, you know, that, that, that somehow we have to hide our deepest truths to be safe. Mm. Yeah. That's wonderful. Truth will set you free. That's great. So if people want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Well, you have to use your deep intuition and pray and like light a candle. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was my, somehow my like silly younger trickster. Um, self is uh, francescagentile.com. So francescagentile.com is my website. Relationshipdiva at gmail.com is my email. Email is often a really great way. And uh, also I'm on Facebook and I'm happy to, uh, if there's, if there's a way with the posting too of this, to send them some documents on some of this reframing and some of this work, because I, I always, you know, I'm wanting the world to be a world of inner peace and harmonious relationships in which sexuality is experienced as a blessing. Awesome. Yeah, we can include all of that in the show notes for them. That's wonderful. So thank you, Francesca, for being here. And I think I learned a lot from you today. So I appreciate you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Cara. I really felt your you know, radiantly courageous and vulnerable heart and your commitment to really creating a, that world of peace and connection and harmony for all beings. And I really feel like I'm with a soul, a soul kindred spirit here. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Thank you.